Brief one, early childhood. David Goggins, Lessons for Believers from His Life. Well, he was born in 1975, the son of Trunus and Jackie Goggins. He was born in New Jersey. It was a rather idyllic appearing life with a nice house in a nice upper middle class neighborhood and all looked to be well. But the truth was there was really a horror story lying behind that facade. The father was horribly abusive. He beat the children. He beat his wife like she was one of the children. He gave her no money. He didn't actually formally marry her so as to keep her in, chained to him and obligated to him in every way. He was actually the owner of a roller skate rink, and he made the kids work in the roller skate rink after 6 p.m. pretty much the rest of the night because the roller skate rink was also a nightclub. And so they had to stay there and work all through the night because they were his only employees. It was a rather famous nightclub. He had folks come through like um, O.J. Simpson, um, folks like um, Rick James and the like. A lot of famous people actually came through his, uh, his club. But he was also a pimp. And he used that to get loans from neighborhood banks. And he used that to get in good with the police. So one time his wife tried to call the police and Boy, that did not go well because he was in really well with them. And uh, they basically didn't talk to her at all or even interview her. And this was in the time prior to the Me Too movement and all of that. And so things were just tougher for her even after that. Um, She did finally find a way to get out with the help of a neighbor who showed her how she could do it. Uh, And then also, you know, she left and she went to her parents' house in Indiana and so he, he moved around some, and, but they still had a very tough time because it was at this point when she went to her parents' house that they really had to go and aid families with dependent children. And they really often didn't have enough money to make rent and, and or eat at the same time. So it was difficult. And they moved around some. He had an apparent savior, Mr. Irving, who came into his life and played the role of a father for a time taught him how to play basketball, was there for him when, at his basketball games and the like. It was really seems, seemed to be a stand-up guy. But he was about to marry David's mother. He went home. In his driveway, he was shot multiple times and killed. And so that ended that. There went that potential light, you know, in that bright spot in their life. And so from that point, you know, I think that they felt really going to have a, you know, we're not going to catch any breaks. And I think he, he kind of went to a deeper, darker place. There was one bright spot. He went to a Catholic school for a time. He had a teacher, Miss Catherine, who really worked with him for him to be all that he could be, taught him how to read, for example. Brief two, the rest of childhood in Air Force. He's still moving around. This experience of being the only that a lot of African-Americans have, where you're the only one of your of your type, you know, in a given group of class, on a basketball team, on a, in, in, at a work setting, you're the only one. And so it makes you exotic and the object of unwanted attention in a negative way. He's called the N-word numerous times, had people try to chase him down in trucks, get out and threaten him. Again, a rather common experience for African-Americans. 
He was barely literate, though, because, you know, he'd only had Miss Catherine to teach him to read. And after that, his experiences in the educational system were pretty negative. And so what he did was he began to cheat to make it through. And so while he learned how to cheat, he didn't learn any real skills. So he was very insecure, had a lot of issues. And his only real skill was his ability to play basketball, thanks to Mr. Irving. But he got a glimpse of a, a Mr. Goering from the Air Force who came to their school to speak. And Mr. Goering had fallen, his had parachuted out of a plane, his parachute had failed to deploy. And he had fallen into the ground at 100 miles an hour, but he had fallen unconscious. And so his body was completely limp when he hit. And so he lived, unbelievably, but he did. And they told him he would never recover, but 18 months later, he had made a full recovery and he would go around the schools and like and speak. And David heard him and he got a glimpse of something that attracted him, military life, the Air Force in particular. He went and became an Air Force tactical controller. And so that gave him a little bit of a change to his life. But after that, he got out and uh, became an exterminator and saw a little movie about seals and it captivated him and made him want to do something another glimpse of something brief three seal training so after he put himself on a very strict diet and began to run at first he could run barely a mile but he got himself to the point where he could really run quite far and he the weight started clipping off he started making Little micro goals, so like weekly goals of how much weight he wanted to, to lose. And sure enough, he made it. He lost over 120 pounds in just three months. And was also in very good shape because he had done so much running uh, to get there. So he enters SEAL training, but doesn't have a lot of water, you know, pool experience or swimming or anything like that. So very uncomfortable in the water. But he's, he manages to make it through Hell Week a first time, but gets pneumonia his first try, and then they bounce him back. And so he goes through a second time, and then this time he manages to mess up his knee to the point where he can't do anything. But again, he gets through Hell Week, which is the hardest part of it. But he's unable to continue because of the damage he's done to his knee and legs. And so then it comes back, his his wife, he... And um, you married this young lady who had a child from a prior from a prior relationship. And he turns out he gets her pregnant. And so now he's he's got to make it because he's it's it's not just about him, but about his family. And so he makes it through once again. But this time he still got leg issues once he finishes hell week. But he still got to. Got to make it another six months or so with doing a lot of running. So he comes up with this tape system where he sort of duct tapes his legs in place. And, you know, he makes it. but He's got to because he's got a family that's depending on him. Brief four, ultra marathons. And so there was an operation called Operation Red Wing, which many of you may have seen the movie about, called Lone Survivor, where there's only one seal the mission fails and only one seal makes it home. Well, this these were a lot of his friends he'd known from his three trips through the training program that he had for SEALs. And he was very good friends with the, the identical twin brother of the one guy who did survive. And so he decided to help them out 
from a charitable standpoint, raise some money, something called the Operation Warrior Foundation. This is a charity that does things like helps the kids of of uh, warriors who've lost their fathers, been killed in action, helps them to get tutors, helps them to get into colleges, pays their tuition when they go, helps them to, you know, sort of tries to fill that gap of having lost your parent. And so he decided he was going to run some races to raise money for Operation Warrior Foundation. Um, and he decides he's going to run, he wants to run the Badwater 135-mile race. Now, you have to understand something. To this point, you know, he'd done all the SEAL training where they run a lot, but nothing like this, not even anything like a marathon. And so the first thing that he does, he, when he talks to the guy, the guy tells him it's an, by invitation race. And so he's got to run some other events and show that he can do it. So he enters the San Diego 100 race, having not even been training, not even running. He was basically lifting and not running maybe once a week. And he enters it, you know, with regular tennis shoes, very poor nutrition and everything. And the guy runs 101 miles in less than 19 hours. And so he tries, still trying to qualify for this uh, bad backwater, bad water, uh, 135. And the guy tells him he's got to do more. It's by invitation and he hadn't done enough. And so, you know, at this time he's completely broken his body down because, you know, nobody does this, right? Nobody doesn't train and then successfully runs. He actually ran 101 miles because he ran one extra just to make sure. And then he, to, to try again, he runs a hurt 100 in Oahu and he finishes ninth. And now I understand this is only a second time running 100 miles and he still doesn't know what the heck he's doing. He enters the Las Vegas Marathon, does well there. And lo and behold, he's qualified for the 2005 Badwater 135. And so he runs this thing. You know, it's a whole different test of who you are and what you are to run 135 miles. Think about that. What we're talking about here is we're talking about essentially almost six marathons. And so he runs it and he finishes fifth. And it turns out he's doing all these things. He's got a hole in his heart that really only allows him to get up to probably 75% of the oxygen that normal people get. So he goes through surgery and gets that repaired. But he has a lot of problems post that. And uh, he eventually has to get a second surgery. He has some other health problems. It turns out he's overstressed his muscles lost a lot of flexibility, had to do a lot of stretching and the like in order to actually get the blood to circulate through his body. He nearly died because his muscles in certain points had gotten so tight um, and so little flexibility to them. Blood literally couldn't pass through his body and he was literally dying as a result of that. So he started stretching a lot of hours a day, um, adding running to it. And eventually, as recently as 2020, last year, he ran a Moab 240-mile race and he took second place in it at the age of, he would have been 44. So now, brief five, spiritual applications, insights to be gained from David Goggins' life. Part one. Well, the first one, what a, the first one that I got was this, that you can overcome truly horrendous circumstances. 
And there spiritually, I look at the scripture where the Lord says this. He says, in this world, you will have trials and tribulations. He says, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And I would say in the case of David, his situation with respect to his father, his abusive nature, beating his mother, beating him, having to watch all of that violence, knowing that his mother was receiving no money, his mother having to flee for her life with nothing, um, him not knowing how to read, cheating his way through, feeling like a failure, being the only horrible circumstances in his early part of his life. But he overcame that to go and do something and be something. And I say that to say that God has a plan for your life, for my life, for everyone's life. And no matter what the difficulties, we can actually use the difficulties to springboard to something greater for him. The second thing is that that road lies through suffering. And so when I say that, what I mean is Jesus had to carry his cross. He had to be whipped. He had to suffer the death of a slave on the cross. He had to wrestle with and defeat death and the grave to get the victory over death for us. And we, as his disciples, as his followers, we're going to have to do the same thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said much the same thing, that, you know, we have to walk through this bed of suffering. That's part of what comes with being a believer, which is why it's partly this, why it's a narrow way. The world says, you know, take the easy way, take the pain-free way. But out of pain comes growth. And out of pain and suffering comes ministry. Because how can I minister to you about losing a spouse or losing a child if I haven't experienced that? I can't really know what it's like if I haven't walked through that. But out of that men, out of that suffering, God can do something great. And so at the other end of suffering is victory. That's why Jesus said, in this world you will have trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer. That but is key in that because he said, for I have overcome the world. You're an overcomer. You're one who emerges victorious. Brief six, key takeaways, spiritual insights, part two. David Goggins, Lessons for Believers. Book. Well, one of the points that he makes is that you need an armored mind. Now, he's talking about being mentally tough and pushing through what he calls a governor. And the governor is that part of your mind that tries to keep you safe and comfortable operating at about 40% of your limits. The governor on a car is what, you know, keeps your car from really running away all out, right? Uh, but it's to preserve the engine. And the body tries to do the same thing. But what the word tells us, Paul said that we have spiritual armor as believers that we can put on. And he said we can put on the helmet of salvation, which is the mind of Christ. Um, it's what I would say, right? It's that same mentality that Christ had, which is a never quit, never give up mindset. The second thing in this part was he said, you know, he gave his all, pretty much what he did. And, and sometimes more than what he thought his all was, like in the case of running that San Diego 100 miler, you know, having never run further than probably 10 miles before and having not prepared for it at all. But having in that situation, he was able to run 101 miles. Now, it's true that his kidneys failed. It's true that when he finished, he was covered in blood and other gore, you know, bodily waste and stuff just from his body doing crazy things. But the point is he was able to do it. He was able to run four marathons, having not prepared for it with poor nutrition, with poor hydration, with poor equipment, tennis shoes and the like. And, you know, God made us to be able to do so much, but it's with him. And so from a spiritual standpoint, 
he said, take my yoke upon you for my burdens are easy. My yoke is light. And what was he saying? Well, he was saying that we can do things that are greater things than we could ever do on our own. Because when we join Christ, when we become born again, it becomes a, a two person yoke, us and Christ. And so you're not doing it alone. You give it all you've got, but Christ gives it all he's got. And Paul put it like this. For it is God who works in you to will and to act on behalf of his good purpose. He said, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's you and that's God both working together in the yoke. The other point he makes is using past successes. And in the Bible, there's the Ebenezer stones. So when Joshua had the people cross into the promised land on dry land, when they went across the river Jordan, he had each tribe go back and pick up a stone and set it up in a heap where they could remember that God did that for them. He called it Ebenezer stone, right? The thing to remember the past successes, the past triumphs that God gave you in the book, David Goggins talks about the cookie jar. Well, Ebenezer stones are the same thing and it's from the Bible. And the final thing I would say is Habakkuk said, write the vision, make it plain. And so he's a big believer in writing things down, writing his goals down, visualizing his goals and breaking his, his goals into small steps so that he could look at it week by week. For example, when he lost the over 100 pounds to go into SEAL training in the first place, he would pretty much write it down week by week. You know what he'd lost and track it week by week, how many pounds he lost, um, how many miles he ran and all that. He was a big believer in recording it. And I think that's important for a believer as well. Brief seven, personal takeaways. David Goggins, Lessons for Believers from His Life. The personal takeaways of the briefer. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And so here are the things that I'm going to put into practice as a result of this book. And in fact, that I've already begun to put into practice. First, I'm going to run outside no matter how cold or hot it is. Now, typically, I don't mind the heat, but I'm one who does not like cold weather. And so typically when it gets cold, I'll sort of jog in the house, run in place, run around on the carpet. I'll wimp out because I really don't like the cold. And, and I, to be honest, I kind of kind of fear it. Um, but the two coldest days of the year today, yesterday, I ran outside in the morning. Now in the morning, you know, that's when it's really cold. And, you know, it's not bad if you do things properly. But the point is to face your fears. And see, when the disciples were in the boat, and the storm was raging on the Sea of Galilee. And while Jesus was sleeping, they were afraid. And when Jesus woke up, the first thing he said was, he said, where is your faith? And then he said, why are you afraid? And basically what he was saying is faith overcomes fear. And the word also tells us that perfect love overcomes fear. And so you need to face your fears. And this is one of the things that David did in the book. For example, he had a fear of heights. But, you know, he got his parachuting qualification jumping out of a plane, you know, from several thousand feet up in the sky. And as a result of that, he got to a point where not only did he overcome his fear, but he began to understand the beauty of it and the peacefulness of it, you know, of doing parachuting, a thing that he would have been deathly afraid to do by facing his fears. And the other point on this is a lot of times the path to your, to your goal, to your destination, to your purpose, the reason you were built by God, it lies through your fears. And so you've got to go through those to get to where God wants you to go. So to get to the promised land, you've got to go through some fights and some battles. 
And even when you get to the promised land in this world, you're going to have to fight. But the beauty is that Jesus does guarantee us the victory. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to, I read every much, pretty much of every day anyway, but I'm going to read in an active fashion, which is different. You know, when you read to really take things away, as opposed to just reading for enjoyment, it's different. The third thing I'm going to do is present myself to God at least three times a day, every day. I've been pretty consistent about praying, you know, in the morning. That's my favorite time to pray. I like to run and pray and, you know, have for many years, but, you know, that's not enough. I'm going to practice this memoriam prayer that you can learn more about reading the book, learning to pray at the end of the day, in the middle of the day, thanking God for how things are going, asking for his help. And then the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make all my work better. That's not that I'm going to do more because I'm going to actually do less, but I'm going to do less better. Those are, that's my takeaways from, those are my takeaways from the book. You know, he really focused, I think eventually, you know, he set the world's pillow record, uh, 4,000 pull-ups in a single day. Uh, you know, he won a lot of ultra marathons, David did in the book. Went through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, you know, tore his body up, took himself places he didn't know he could go. I think that we all have the ability to do that, uh, especially those of us who are believers, because we have a help that is greater than ourselves. And I've seen it, God do that. I've seen him work in my own life, you know, to do those kind of things already. So, and I know he'll do those kind of things for you as well. So be blessed. Hi, thank you for listening to this brief. We have plenty more at christianbrief.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F.com. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And hope you check out some of the other briefs at christianbrief.com.